and turn, if you will, to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 5 today, Exodus chapter 5. I want to look at a message entitled, Making Bricks Without Straw, Making Bricks Without Straw. I found that title, it's not original, I found it in one of my Bibles as uh, one of those little headings. You see those in your Bible sometimes, maybe your Bible has those little headings in your, uh, up at the top or sometimes in the margins or things like that, but I thought that was a great title to the message today after I was uh, studying it out and looking at making bricks without straw. That's exactly what's happening and uh, that's in some ways what God uh, puts on us to do in our lives. Uh, maybe you've heard the old phrase, uh, when life gives you lemons, what do you do? Make lemonade, right? The problem is this, I found out with life, is that life doesn't usually give you lemonade, lemon, amen? Usually gives you rotten tomatoes and it says make lemonade, all right? I mean, that's usually the way life is. Uh, I wish it was always, you know, uh, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Uh, but that's not the way it works all the time. Life is full of disappointments. Learn to glorify God in them. Life is full of disappointments, folks. I don't think that's a headliner to any of you this morning, all right? I don't think that's a, a breaking news or anything like that. Uh, but life is full of disappointments. Learn to glorify God in them. That is where we're at today. In this book of Exodus, we find Moses is in a very uh, precarious position. He is not in a place that he has chosen to be. He is in a place that he doesn't want to be. And uh, he is having to make some very difficult decisions. And at the same time, he's getting berated for it. And he's experiencing much disappointment. And if I were to tell you that you're going to be disappointed with life, that uh, you're going to be disappointed sometimes with your children, you're going to be disappointed sometimes with your marriage, with your job, uh, with your church, with your family, uh, even with your own self and your own, I should say my own sometimes stupid decisions. But the thing is this, is that you cannot allow those disappointments to force you to give up on your life's purpose as a believer. Life's purpose as a believer in Jesus Christ is simple. That is to glorify God in all that we say, think, or do. Whatsoever therefore you eat or drink, what does it say? Do all to the glory of God. Whatsoever therefore you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. You learn quickly that this life is a bed of roses with all the thorns added to it, right? That's what life is. But we must learn to make bricks without straw. Moses learned this early on in his ministry. He learned this quickly. He learned that it's not an easy job to lead a million people out of Egypt or more. Some think this may be two million, some think it's even more. Whatever it is, we know that there was a minimum of 600,000 men, not including women and children and all the animals that had to go with them and the mixed multitude. There's a lot of people that he had to lead out. Remember, if you will, Moses didn't choose this job. 
If you go back a couple of chapters, chapter 3, uh, Moses is on the backside of the desert and he sees what the Bible calls and describes for us as a burning bush. Uh, I don't know, uh, it's an accurate description, but in a sense it's not because the bush wasn't actually burned up or consumed, but it was on fire, but it wasn't on fire. I don't know how to explain it. It was a miracle, all right? Miracles are things oftentimes that you can't explain. Jesus walks on water, and so does Peter. How do you explain that? I don't know. I can't. It's a miracle. A miracle is in front of Moses. A bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. It's a burning bush, but it's not actually burning. It's not actually being burnt as a normal bush would burn. And as he goes up to that bush and investigates this scene, immediately a voice comes out and talks to him. And it's God Almighty, known as Jehovah. And he says, I have not revealed myself as Jehovah to your forefathers, but I've revealed myself unto you and unto the children of Israel. I am Jehovah. Tell them that I am that I am hath sent you. Remove off your shoes for the place where thou standest is holy ground. And he does so and he says, you're going to go back to Egypt. Now immediately, don't you think that Moses' heart began to sink within him when he said that? I mean, that was 40 years ago he was gone out of there. But do you remember why Moses left Egypt? Because he was a fugitive. That's why. He had murdered a, a man. He had killed a man. And because he had killed a man, they were going to kill him, rightfully so. And he runs out, gets out of there. He's a fugitive. He's a vagabond. He's in a place where nobody can find him. And there he is in this backside of the desert. And God says to him, you're going back to the place where you're a fugitive. He says, I don't want to. Does he say that in the scriptures? No, but that's what he means. All right? I don't want to do that. I don't want to go back. Uh, you you got to be kidding me. Uh, I, I can't do this. I mean, what if they don't believe me? And uh, he comes up with excuse after excuse. And I, I've been studying the life of Moses on, in our church on Sunday nights. And uh, I just recently went back on this. And we started studying the life of Moses back in 2019. And uh, it's just been uh, an ongoing thing. But I've been astounded with the maturity and the growth that I've found in Moses' life. It's been amazing. Moses has grown throughout, the, he grows throughout these chapters. It's really astounding to see his growth in the Lord. And uh, it's a great uh, example for all of us that we uh, can grow in the Lord. Uh, do you know when Moses really started growing in the Lord? When he was about 80. <laughs> he was about 80. Now, I don't suppose that any of us are going to live to 120, 140, 150 or anything like that. So you might want to start a little earlier, all right? But uh, it's encouraging, amen, to say the least. You ever, you ever, if any of you in this room right now think, I'm just too old to start growing in God, uh, just go back and look at Moses and realize that none of us are too old to start growing in the Lord. None of us are at a place in our lives where we can't say, you know what, I believe God can really use me at this point in my life. I believe God uh, really wants to work in my life, in my heart right now. Uh, you're not too old. You're not, you're not at a place where God cannot use you. You still alive? You breathing? Come on now, all right? You breathing this morning? God can use you. God can use you. But life is going to be disappointing. So I don't really agree with the statement that some people say sometimes. I don't think it's biblical, nor do I think it's spiritual. Some people say these things, well, I didn't choose this. I didn't choose this life. I've said it before, and I 
probably shouldn't say it, and after studying this out and writing this message, I'm going to try to work on this, but I've said before that I'm a plumber by trade. I didn't choose to be a plumber. Uh, plumbing chose me, and uh, I, I didn't seek out plumbing. Maybe you didn't choose your job. Maybe your job chose you. Um, I, I didn't choose to have this kid. Some prefer people say that. I didn't get a choice on having a normal childhood. I've heard people say that too, and I oftentimes want to ask them, what is a normal childhood then? I don't know. To state it bluntly, a lot of times those types of attitudes are not spiritual. Because what we're doing is we're looking at life in a way that we ought not to be. You see, many times, life scenarios, we don't get to choose. We don't get to choose them. They're chosen for us. And we're placed and we're put into situations and things that oftentimes that we were none of our choosing. David was just a 13-year-old lad keeping sheep, having a good time, enjoying the outdoors. I can imagine being 13 years old. And in, in, in ancient Hebrew time. Can you imagine that? I mean, with the wild, with the bears and the lions. I mean, I mean, as a kid, I, I used to tell my mom, I'm going to the woods. I mean, that literally meant I was going like 50 yards away from our property, okay, into this little bitty patch of woods that really wasn't like five pine trees, okay? Uh, so, I mean, that was the woods. Wow. My kids talk about the woods behind the house. We're going in the woods, you know. But David was in the woods. I mean, he was in the wilderness. I mean, he was a boy. Just running all around. And John tells me about how him and his brothers were out in the woods, you know, in Pennsylvania. I mean, for, uh, you know, hours at a time. I think, man, my, if my kids were gone for hours at a time, I mean, I'd be worried sick, you know. David's having the time of his life. And then all of a sudden, Samuel shows up, pours some oil on his head, and says, you're going to be the next king. And David, the only thing David's thinking is, man, why is this stuff all over my face? You know what I mean? Let me get back out to the, to, the, to the field. By the time he's 15 or 16, he's fighting a Goliath. And, and by that time, a little bit later, uh, he's anointed king. Saul kind of finds out about these things and realizes what's happening, that this is the next king of Israel. And for about 15 years, he's persecuted. And he's sought after. David never chose any of that. Jeremiah never chose, uh, God told Jeremiah whenever he was thinking about quitting, he says, I chose you from your mother's womb. And Jeremiah didn't get to choose his life's, um, uh, life's goal. Uh, Daniel uh, was there, and, there with his family. Everything was going just fine. And then one day, here comes this king Nebuchadnezzar, and he steals him, him away from his family. And most likely, his family were killed in front of him. And they were brought and hauled off, to, hauled off down to Babylon. And he was forced to learn a language that he didn't know about. And he was forced to live in conditions that he didn't like. Yet, he chose in those particular times to, though there was great disappointment, in their lives, they chose rather to glorify God and trust God, even in times of disappointment, even in times of difficulty. Because though those men and, and women, I could recall to you also, did not have this verse in front of them, yet they lived it out. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called 
according. And we oftentimes leave off that last part, don't we? You ever thought about it? We know that all things work together for them to, do, to them that, to, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. His purpose. Not called according to my purpose, but His purpose. I'm to live for His purpose, not my purpose. And when you live for your purpose, you end up eating bad fruit and condemning all mankind. You follow me? <laughs> when you live for your purposes, you spoil things. You mess up things and things don't turn out the way that they should, to be, should be and oftentimes. But life is full of disappointments. That's obvious. The main question I have to ask you is this morning is this, is how are you and I going to handle life's disappointments? Are we going to cry and bellyache? Are we going to get upset and mad? Are we going to become impetuous and rash and harsh and hasty? Or are we going to see life's disappointments as rather not life's disappointments, but rather God's appointments to glorify Him? God's appointments to glorify Him. Let me just tell you this real quickly, is that the world's going to disappoint you. Amen? The world is going to disappoint you. Look here in Exodus. He says, God tells him to go down to Egypt, talk to Pharaoh, tell them to let my people go. And Moses waltzes in there with Aaron, and afterward it says, And Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Exodus 5.1, Thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, let my people go. I mean, I love that verse. Don't you? Let my people go. I mean, don't you think that Moses thought? I mean, you got to realize that, what, what, I mean, in my mind, what I'm thinking, what I'm seeing here is that Moses thought, and you'll see this at the end of the chapter too, is that Moses thought when he walks in and says, let my people go, that Pharaohs are going to say, all right, sounds good. What do you want? You know what I mean? What can we provide for you? You know? And that's not what happens. It says that they may hold a feast for me in the, in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, the God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. And I was thinking about that three days' journey. I don't know that God ever really told him to go three days' journey into that I almost feel like this is a concession by Moses to say, well, if that doesn't work, just let us kind of slip off into the, to the wilderness for a couple of days and we'll come back, okay? Because God's intent was that literally that the people left. I never find God telling Moses this. Never find God saying three days journey. Uh, you'll find as you read throughout the plagues that God makes it very clear with Moses that there is no three day journey involved, that you're leaving, okay? We're done here. We're not coming back. And he makes that even more abundantly clear whenever he drowns the Egyptians in the Red Sea. But nonetheless, the world is going to disappoint you. 
the world disappoints. And I don't need to tell you that today, but, but you, we all need to re- be reminded of it. Moses is a little bit too hopeful here in the world and what he's expecting from the world. But Psalms tells us clearly, it says, give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. It actually says it again in Psalm 108 and verse number 12. He says the same verse, give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. In fact, Isaiah warns uh, his own people several thousand years later whenever they consider going back down to Egypt for help. For he says to them in Isaiah 37, he says, For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. To no purpose. We must all learn that the help of the world is vain. What does that mean? That means this, is that we cannot place absolute confidence in mankind. They will fail us. People fail us. The world fails us. The world will disappoint. It's good to let that sink into our minds now rather than later. Before we're jaded and get mad at the world, before we recognize it too late in our eyes. Moses had a plan of walking in there and saying, let my people go, but it didn't work out. But why doesn't the tactic work? Moses doesn't have to ask any questions. Pharaoh clearly reveals to him why he can't depend upon Pharaoh. He says, who is the Lord? I know not the Lord. And go to the people of your world today. That is the cry of the world right there. I know not the Lord. I know not the Lord. I don't know who you're talking about. God is not in their thoughts. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. We must not let the world uh, keep us down in disappointment, but we must learn to teach us from from the scriptures that that safety is from the Lord. Help is from God. For the oppression of the poor, for the sign of the needy, now will I rise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Psalm 4.8. It's God who we find our life's help. The world says, I don't even know the Lord. Don't put your trust in the Lord, in the world. The world will disappoint you. Don't put your trust in your work. Your work will disappoint you. Amen? I mean, your work will disappoint you. I don't have really the time to read verses 4 through 19, but this portion consumes the majority of the text here. I'll read a couple of verses to just provide some context in verse 4. And the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works get you unto your burdens? And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, and ye make them rest from their burdens. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no more give the people straw to make brick, as as heretofore let them 
go and gather straw for themselves. And the tail of the bricks, that means the amount of bricks that they were supposed to make on a daily basis, which they did make heretofore or before this time, ye shall lay it upon them, ye shall not diminish all thereof, for they be idle. Therefore they cry, saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let there be more work be laid upon the men that they may labor therein, and let them not regard vain words. Let's just break that down a little bit. Uh, what has happened here is Pharaoh, instead of letting the people go, makes things harder on them. And he says, you know what? We used to provide straw for y'all to make bricks. What's interesting, too, is archaeologists have proven this, that, that there was actually, that they did exactly that. They find bricks that are made of straw, just like the Bible talks about, that go back to these specific dates that the exodus was written but nonetheless is that he says you're not going to get any more straw you're going to have to get it yourself and do the same exact work wow that's heartbreaking that ain't going to work that's not going to happen talk about harsh rigor he demands them to continue to produce the same amount of work, bricks as they were producing before. But it's just not going to work out. In fact, he tells them, he tells the taskmasters this. He says, for they be idle. What's interesting is that in Egyptian literature back in this time, that idleness is one of the cardinal sins of the Egyptians during, the ancient, during ancient Egypt times. In fact, one of, their, uh, one of the reasons why you would go to eternal hell or eternal damnation is because of idleness, is what they said. So two different, on two different occasions in this chapter, chapter 8, verse number 8 and verse number 17, he accuses them of idleness. And I think so because it just is something to infuriate the taskmasters. They're idle. Oh, oh if they're idle, man, that's a horrible sin. That's ungodly. That's wicked. Let's just put it on them. Let's just put it on them. What he's saying is this. If you've got enough time to go worship God in the wilderness, <laughs> then you've got enough time to go find some straw, all right? So get out of here. And that's exactly what he demands of them. It was not an easy experience. In fact, they were driven to the point of exhaustion. In fact, our Bible tells us that they were abused, they were mistreated. In verse 14, and the officers of the children of Israel, when the taskmaster had set over them, were beaten. And they demanded them, wherefore have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as heretofore? He's begging, they're, they're beating them now for not doing the work. The Bible lets us know that they were grieved by this. And they go to Pharaoh in verse number 18. And as they go to him and they beg of him, they ask him, why, why, what is going on here? What's the problem? The fault is not thine own people. It's in thine own people, he says in verse number 16. It's not our fault, it's your fault. We don't have straw. And Pharaoh tells him, go, work, sacrifice. You can sacrifice, but you... Can't pick up the straw. In verse number 19, the Bible says, And the officers of the children of Israel did see that they were evil in the case. After it was said, Ye shall not minish aught from your bricks of your daily task. This whole entire dialogue from verses 4 down to verse number 19 
to me is just a what not to do if you're an employer, okay? I came up with several things here. Uh, don't make unreasonable demands, all right? Don't, do, not cruelly, do not allow superiors to cruelly treat uh, those that are inferiors. Do not misrepresent them. Do not mistreat them. Do not abuse them. Do not overwork them. Uh, uh, allow them to have the proper tools and the right tools for the job. Do not falsely accuse them. This chapter is like a textbook of, like I said, what not to do at work. But how many of you have experienced the things that I just read off to you? Have you been abused? Some of you may have been abused at work, emotionally, physically, sexually. Maybe you've been overworked and underpaid. Mucho trabajo, poquito dinero. You know, as I, you know, you know, I joke around with some guys that I've worked with before on that and everything. Maybe you've been mistreated. Maybe you've been misrepresented. Maybe you've been cruelly treated by your superiors. Maybe your boss makes unreasonable and unjust demands. Freyor broke all the rules, but he doesn't care. And a lot of times your work doesn't care, it seems like. And you're probably going to experience one of these, if not all of these, at your work sometimes. Are you going to allow those disappointments to make you quit? Or are you going to trust in the Lord and see that God has everything in control? And that simply you and I are just servants at his bidding. I'm not saying that we take abuse. Don't get me wrong. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this, is that when your work dishes out the disappointments, find those as appointments to glorify God. Find room to glorify God in everything, in everything. As you read the life of the children of Israel from Exodus to New Deuteronomy, very seldom, very seldom do you find them when life dishes out a disappointment, do you very seldom ever find them giving any glory to God. But you do find them, I think, 11 times complaining and murmuring. It's easier to complain about your boss at work than it is to glorify God because of the situation that you're in. What are you doing? What are we doing? Disappointments are coming. But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to them that asketh of the reason that uh, asketh uh, asketh you of the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Oh. What is that saying, preacher? What that's saying is clear. Is that if you suffer for well-doing, 
You suffer for well-doing, and if, it be the, if, it's the, if it's the will of God, and if you suffer for well-doing, then, my friend, you can give glory to God in that thing. You can praise God over that thing. You can thank God for that thing. Because it might even give you an opportunity to witness to somebody and to tell somebody the gospel and give them a chance to open up to you and say, why are you behaving this way when you've been treated so badly? Because I'm a Christian. Because I believe in Jesus Christ. Because I believe in somebody that whenever they nailed him to a tree and he had the power to kill everybody that was around him, he shut his mouth. He closed his mouth. He didn't say a word. He didn't say anything. I'm not asking you to remain in a job that you absolutely hate. Okay? But what I am believing the word of God is teaching us here is that we learn to glorify God in everything that we do and say and think. Everything. Finally, we see here at the end of the chapter, your work will disappoint you, the world will disappoint you, but your own people will disappoint you too. He says, as they're leaving this meeting that they have with Pharaoh, they walk out the door, and who do they meet? But their good buds, Moses and Aaron, as they're walking up to see Pharaoh too. And what do you think the children of Israel and the officers of the children of Israel do whenever they meet Moses and Aaron? Hey, guys, how's it going? Good to see you. I mean, we've been so excited. I mean, we even get to gather straw now. Isn't that great? None of you are laughing. I thought, you know, that's not what they did, okay? They're not, this is not what happened, okay? Man, we're just, we get more of a workout. Praise God. No, that's not what happens at all. Our heroes, right? No. They meet Moses and Aaron in the way, and as they come forth out of from Pharaoh, and they, and they said unto them, the Lord look upon you. I mean, that's, I, like that. I think that's probably how they said it, you know. We're not given, you know, dramatic reading in our scriptures here or anything like that or say with emphasis in parentheses. But, I mean, I, the Lord look upon you. What does that mean? In Hebrew, that means we hope the Lord condemns you and judges you. We hope you get put down, man. Because he says in verse number 21, again, it says, and judge the Lord look upon you and judge, because you have made our savor, that means you've made our look, our taste in front, of, in front of Pharaoh to be a horde in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hand to slay us. They berated them. They were upset with them. They, they condemned them for what they had done whenever they were just listening to God. Think about that. They're listening to God. Moses doesn't even want to listen to God, but he listens to God anyhow. And guess what? He ends up happening. He gets judged for it. This is an eye opener. This should be an eye opener for all of us here 
this morning. That none of us walk out those doors ever, ever again for the eternity of our life. If that even makes sense, all right? For the rest of our life, ever walk out of these doors and ever think, if just because I obey God, good things are going to start coming to me. If you ever think that, then I hope and pray to God that you'll remember some country backwoods preacher telling you that that's not what the Bible says. Because that's not what the Bible says. That's not what happens in the, God, in the Word of God many times. Does it happen sometimes? Yes, it does happen sometimes. But here's the deal, my friend, is that many times, especially early on in the Christian walk in life, is that when you obey God, oftentimes you're going to be rebuked and condemned and put down and looked down upon. There's two reasons I believe for that. Number one is that people see a really vast change in you and they're kind of put off. <laughs> Who are you? We know who you used to be. I mean, you used to smoke with us, drink with us, party with us, and now you're telling me, you know? Oh, wait a second, you know, <laughs> no. But secondly, I also believe this, is that God is testing you, and he's putting you through the fire. And some of us got to be tested a little bit more than others. But he's seeing how are you going to hold up? Under life's disappointments. Your countrymen will disappoint you. They did here. I mean, if anybody should have been there for them, you would have thought they would have been the Hebrews if they would have been on their side, but it wasn't the case. Really, you see in the story here is that Pharaoh's the good guy and Moses is the bad guy. That doesn't even make sense. Pharaoh is the dude that's enslaving you. Okay? And you're siding with him? That's a great lesson for all of us as Christians and believers here. That we never take sides with the world over a Christian brother or sister in Christ. Say so that never happens. It happens all the time. All the time. You never take sides with the world over a Christian brother and sister in Christ. Never. Don't take that to an extreme. People always take things to extremes, okay? All right? I hope you understand what I'm saying there. This world will fail you, this world is against Christ. If you've got a brother or sister that's standing with Christ, you're standing with Christ, maybe they rebuke you over something. But then you've got the world over here telling you, oh, you're nothing's wrong with you. You're fine. You're okay. But then you reject their rebuke and you accept their favor. You're wrong. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That's right. But the wounds of a friend are faithful. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
role was switched here. Your family and friends will disappoint you. These are my brothers and sisters. They'll understand. No. Do you know that Jesus' own friends tried to commit him to a mental institution? The Bible says it in Mark 3.21. And his, when his friends heard of it, heard of all the things that he was saying and doing, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. What does that mean when somebody, when I, if I said, uh, you know, Luke, you're beside yourself. You're crazy, you know what I mean? That means you think you're two persons, okay? All right? You're beside yourself. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. Listen to me, my friend. Oftentimes, your own family will be the ones that disappoint you the most. They will be the ones that disappoint you the most. Jesus even said at one point in his ministry, he said, Think not that I came to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword, he says. He says, for I'm come to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother and his daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. That's going to happen. Your church will disappoint you. Okay? Warning. Warning. Your church will disappoint you. Christians will disappoint you. Paul, when he wrote to the Galatian believers, he said, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children of whom I have travailed in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. He was disappointed by what was happening in the Galatian church, how they were being led astray by false Judaizers that were trying to get them back into uh, 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 the practices of Judaism for that, so that they could secure salvation with God. It, it, was just a, it was just a sham for them, and they were doing it in order that they might gain monetary gain from them. It was, it was a complete sham, and, and, and Paul's like, I've worked so hard with you. He was disappointed with the church. And I'm going to stun some of you right here, but look at verses 22 and 23. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? This world will disappoint you. Your work will disappoint you. Your own people will disappoint you. Hear me here now. God will disappoint you. When you come to a place where you stop living for the glory of God and for his purposes and his glory, then you will find, even in your own heart, you believe, God disappoints me. Now understand what I mean by that. I don't mean that God does disappoint you, but in your heart you do believe that God has disappointed you. God has failed you. God has let me down. But we have forgotten the last part of Romans 8, 28. He worketh all things together for good to them that love him. To them are the called according to his purpose. His purpose. 
Not yours. His. Moses questions God. He's seemingly upset and disappointed with what God has done here. I believe there's several factors that go with that. Number one, we set unrealistic expectations upon people. He thought that he would waltz right in there and that he would say, let my people go, and they would let them go. That didn't happen, so guess what? He's disappointed with God. He set unrealistic expectations upon Pharaoh, and he shouldn't have done that. We set unrealistic expectations on life in general. We say, this is what my life is going to be, and we set unrealistic expectations upon life, and none of those things happen, and we say, well, why didn't it happen? And we get disappointed with God. We blame him. We think that life shouldn't include suffering, especially for God-fearing, obedient people. Amen? And sadly, there's some false charismatic churches out there that will try to preach to you that same message. That if you're not, if you are suffering, you're not living right with God. You're not doing right. If somebody preaches that, they've never read the Bible. Yeah, exactly. They've read the Bible. They're just a bunch of liars, and they are liars. We place unfaithful demands upon God and question him. I appreciate Moses' honesty with God. We should be honest with God. But in the beginning of Moses' ministry, he was rash, he was impulsive, and he was hot-headed. Eventually, it was an attitude that cost him into the promised land. He was not able to go. There's nothing wrong with asking God why. I don't believe there is. But what is your attitude in all of it? Moses' attitude was this. God, I did what you told me to do, and now bad things are happening. And I hear Christians have, have said this too. What we misconceive is this, is that if I follow God, everything will be okay. But many times that's not the case. Life is going to deliver us blows, hard blows. Jacob and Genesis 32 is wrestling with God. I mean, he's in a battle with God, literally with, the, with, with God. And the Bible says, and he touched his hip. The Hebrew behind that word touched is literally a hard, forceful blow. What he did is he completely knocked the hip out of joint and dislocated it permanently and shrank the sinew whenever he did at the same time. And, jo- and Jacob walked with a limp and with a cane the rest of his life. God delivered a blow, God himself, to Jacob. What did Jacob do when that happened? Did he let God go and did he say, forget it, I'm done with this. You want to treat me like this, God? I'm done with you. No, he got down on his knees and with a broken hip and a shattered bone, he grabbed a hold of God and he said, God, he said, bless me. And he looked down and he said, what is your name? He said, Jacob, trickster, deceiver. He said, no longer shall thy name be Jacob, but it shall be Israel. See, my friend, it's when we learn to give God glory 
even when times are tough. That will be a changing point. It's a changing point for Jacob. It's a changing point for him. Jeremiah experienced the same thing. I have many more examples to give to you. Amos experienced the same thing. Paul experienced the same thing. But I want to give you one more example who did. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him into Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was falsely accused, beaten, battered. For you and for me, my friend. He died for you so that you could be saved. Are you saved today? He died for you. He suffered all for you. He did nothing wrong whatsoever so that you could be saved. Christian, what are you looking like? What are you looking, how are you looking at life's disappointments? Beloved, think it not strange, he says in 1 Peter 4.12, concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch so as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. How are you looking at disappointments? Do you see them as a trouble? It's a fiery trial which is to try you? Do you get mad, impetuous? Do you get upset and angry, rash, question God? Or do you see disappointments as appointments to glorify God? May all of us be that way. With every head bowed and every